This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. Times best-selling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is the Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. And I just stopped laughing, so I may be a little bit out of breath. We were, <laughs> we, um, I, I kind of have a, a title for this show, which is, and this is the topic: sidekicks and secondary characters. And so I said to Taylor at the last minute, so what? Th- this is sidekicks and secondary characters, right? She says, no, it's sidekicks, secondary characters, and chicken stories. <laughs> <laughs> so guess which one is the chit-chat? <laughs> chicken stories. Okay, so I had actually, I have a story to tell, and I'd actually thought about writing this up as like a post for my patrons, but I'm so overwhelmed and putting things into words on paper is so much work for me that I'm cheating. And I'm just going to tell it here in the podcast. And then I might separate out this little story and post it separately. as like its own audio file or something for the patrons. But as many people know, I have chickens at the place where I go out into the country. And at this time of year, when it's spring, a lot of chickens will get broody. And broody means that they want to sit on the nest and hatch eggs. And people who don't know chickens are like suddenly surprised by this idea that, you mean chickens don't want to hatch eggs all the time? No, no, they don't. In fact, not all breeds of chickens want to hatch hatch their eggs. But some do, and it's very unpredictable who's, I mean, some breeds are notorious for going broody in sect. In fact, some breeds are just worthless as far as egg laying because they don't lay eggs when they're broody. And there's like whole forums devoted to how to break a chicken out of their broodiness so they'll stop sitting on a nest, right? But in in this case, um, for me, because I don't I don't care, uh, the easiest way is to just let them hatch out eggs. And then they, they stop being broody. But the problem is that... Um, these chickens are completely free range. Like people who don't understand livestock, they're, they get all up in arms about, you know, the conditions that chickens live under like cages or whatever. And I'm, I'm opposed to caging chickens, but the downside of letting chickens live a happy life to go wherever they want is they get eaten by predators. Like everybody wants to eat chicken, right? So this out out there, um, the chickens Wait a minute. that survive. Does this story have a happy ending? Yes, it has oh, a happy All right, okay. So out there, the chickens that survive are the ones that grew up there. Like if you try to bring a chicken onto the property from somewhere else, it's like it's it's a goner. Nine times out of ten, it's just not gonna make it. Because the ones that survival of the fittest, you know, the ones that survive are the ones that know how to run for cover when the hawks come overhead or whatever. So anyway, when it comes to hatching babies, it's been my experience that I've I've never seen babies raised by their moms out there make it past four weeks, maybe five weeks. There's just too much out there that wants to eat chickens and baby chickens, especially they're vulnerable. So 
we had, there's all these broodies and I'm like, fine, just let them hatch the eggs. And I'm thinking, well, I'll let them do the hard work and hatch the eggs and then I'll get baby chicks. And I, so the, the, the way I'll do it is I'll let them have like 15 eggs in a clutch or something. And then I'll let them keep three and I'll take the others and I'll raise those myself because I know those are the ones that are going to survive. The ones that they're having, I feel bad for those babies because I know they're not going to make it. But I don't want to take all the babies away because that's not fair to the mom. So it's just like, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't, whatever. So um, the problem with with letting chickens raise, like, uh, do the incubating is that not all eggs incubate at the same rate, the same speed. So the the rate of the growth of the chick in the egg, and you did not know you were going to get a lecture on hatching chicks today, but... the here you go, crash course, is determined by temperature. So if the temperature is too hot, the chicks can grow faster. If it's too slow, it's going to grow slower. So when you have a hen sitting on 15 eggs, not all the eggs are all under her at the same time. So some of the eggs are going to grow at a faster rate. The chicks are going to grow at a faster rate, and they're going to hatch earlier. And every once in a while, you get a situation, which is what I'm leading to here now, where one chick will hatch a day or two before the rest of them and the mom walks off the nest with that chick and everybody else is abandoned. And this story takes place during a cold spell where it was like in the 40s. And if we have temperatures in the 80s or the 90s, a mom can walk off the nest and the chicks could be close to hatching and they're going to be fine because the the ideal temperature for hatching is somewhere in the 93, 95 range, I forget, but somewhere it's under 100 degrees, but over 90. So at that stage, they'll survive. They'll be okay. They'll be a little chilled or a little too warm, but they'll be fine, but not at 40 degrees. So I don't, I'm not there all the time. I'm transient, don't really have a home. And I come back after being away. I know that we're getting close to hatch time. And I come back and there is a nest that was full on in the middle of hatching that the hen walked off the nest. And it's cold. And I'm just horrified because we've got 50, 14, 15 eggs. Uh, two of them have already hatched. And the babies are completely lifeless. Like they got out, they froze to death. Um, all the eggs are stone cold. Like you just took them out of the the refrigerator. And I'm and when they when chicks have already broken through the air cell that's in the the egg, they, you can hear them peeping through the shell. You tap it, you'll hear them peep. And when they've pipped through the the egg shell, you can see their little beaks moving. Nothing, no sound, just quiet as can be. And I'm like, they're all dead. They're all dead. But there's a saying when it comes to livestock is it's not dead until it's warm and dead. So in the garage, I had a brooder from some of the other chicks that I had taken already. And basically, it's just a bucket with some shavings and their food and their water and a heat light. That's what keeps them in, keeps them warm. And the chicks will uh, self-regulate. They'll go in close to the heat when they're cold and they'll move away from the heat when they're too warm. Perfect. Don't have to do anything. Just make sure they have a way to get away from the heat and they get close enough. And so I was like, fine. If that hen doesn't want to do this there herself, I'm going to do it. No incubator, no nothing. And I do know, okay, this, do not try this at home, kids. I know what I am doing. This is not my first rodeo, okay? I went and got another box. 
and a small little box. And I put it up much closer to that light. And I set all the eggs that were left, the ones that were pipped, and the dead chicks in there. And I, I'm, I'm like, these guys are dead. They're gone. They're gone. Absolutely gone. And I was wrong. Within minutes, that floppy little lifeless chick came back to life. <laughs> breathing, cheeping, moving all around. And the danger of putting... Okay, so once a chick hatches, it can get away from the heat if it, if it needs to because it's, it's mobile. But the danger of putting eggs under a lamp like that is the eggs, that they can, it can get too hot and, and overheat and then they die of uh, hyperthermia. So I basically was in there <clears throat> every few hours moving the eggs around, turning them to try and keep them close enough. I would watch where the chicks would go, how far away from the heat they wanted to go. And I figured, well, that's my marker right there of what our, what our soft spot is from the light. I didn't have working temperatures. And we're talking like just half a degree, more or less, uh, Fahrenheit is enough to go too hot or too cold, right? So I'm just gauging by the chick's behavior. I saved all but four of that hatch <laughs> manually by myself with no incubator, just with a light at a box. Yay me! <laughs> And that is my story. I have never heard that phrase before. They're not dead until they're warm and dead. Yeah, they're not dead until they're warm and dead. And I've I've seen that happen before. Chicks older, not not hatching, not in the eggs like this, but you know other chicks that got out in the cold, like rain, because they're really dumb. They don't put themselves up. It's raining. They get drenched and then they freeze, right? And bring them in, put them under a heat lamp, and they come back to life. So, and you're, you're convinced they're dead. But these ones are the most dead I've ever thought something was, to the point where I was actually shocked. Uh, the, not the eggs. I, I felt the eggs had hope because they retain heat on the inside, even if you can't feel on the outside. But those chicks that were floppy, lifeless, tongues lolling out, not literally, but, you know, <laughs> I was like, they're dead. They're absolutely dead, but they weren't. And so, yeah, anyway. All right, so sidekicks and secondary characters. We're transitioning very smoothly from chickens <laughs> coming back to life to sidekicks and secondary characters. Do we even have time for a show, Steve? <laughs> <laughs> It'll have to be short. <laughs> uh, I don't know how short this will be. So um, sidekicks and secondary characters. I have um, talked before about, you know, many times actually about the importance of not letting your characters become uh, NPCs like non-player characters just being there to you know bounce off for your main character to use as a sounding board or whatever right but um, so this is kind of a, a tangent off of that and I realize that sometimes I notice in things that I'm reading especially manuscripts that Sidekicks and secondary characters can sometimes end up looking dumb. And this happens when the, the main character, well, it happens when the author doesn't treat those characters fully as characters because they're so focused on the main character, making the main character look smart, making, you know, and so the, the sidekicks or the secondary characters become just those, uh, the sounding boards, a way to have a conversation. They ask really dumb questions, leading questions, direct questions as a way for the, the main character to do 
their thing and to shine, right? So I started thinking about what it is that makes sidekicks and secondary characters look dumb or look wooden. And it the it, what I keyed into, I what I think is key in this is if the main character doesn't respect that character, right? And the problem is that if the main character doesn't respect that character, then readers won't. And it's one thing to say, well, of course this main character respects that character. You know, obviously they do because of this, that, and that. And that's all well and good. But by their deeds, by their actions, we know them, right? Not by what they say or what we say about them, but what we see on the page. So if on the page, those main characters are not treating those secondary characters with respect, treating them as intelligent adults, then the, those secondary characters are going to come across looking very dumb or dismissed and not important. I ran into an issue on this similar issue with the book that I'm working on now. For those of you who are new here, I am currently uh, really struggling with writing. Um, I had some experiences that kind of basically fried my brain. And I couldn't write for the longest time. And I uh, just could not make words work. And part of that, I think, was due to the fact that I don't think in words. <laughs> so <laughs> being able to, to conjure up these words to convey emotions or whatever became such a struggle that I, I just couldn't do it. And I'm, I'm bringing myself back online. I'm getting doing it more and more. And I've... Uh, I'm working on the, the next Monroe book, and this is a labor of love for my patrons and for myself because I don't have a publisher lined up for it, and I may never have a publisher lined up for it, but I'm, I'm writing it for those who love the character uh, so much that they want this story that I've had in the works for years and have never had the time to work on. So I'm going back to previously written chapters and trying to figure out what was not working about it. Like, why is this not working? And I, the chapter that I'm working on now, chapter three, is sort of sets the tone for everything to follow. Uh, I've talked about it on some recent shows of figuring out the, the motivations, taking it beyond just the obvious uh, reasons for why somebody would want to do something and going deeper. And I, I figured that out. And the challenge has been getting that on the page. But I also felt that um, the characters were not deep. Like, I started writing this, these scenes very distant from my characters because it had been so long since I had spent time with them, having had started another series, written two books in that series, and now I'm coming back. And I'm, I'm rather detached from them, and you can see that detachment. I can. I can see that detachment on the page. And so trying to um, to bring these characters alive, understanding that some readers may have not spent years with them, they've spent years apart from them as well, you know? How to bring them alive, make them real, um, while, you know, enveloped in the plot, like moving the plot forward. And I hit this spot where the, the characters, the main character, Monroe, was either going to make the secondary character look stupid or he was going to make her look stupid because they had conflicting information. She knew what she knew. He had actual 
detail, research on his side. And they were in conflict, the two things. How do you, like, when when your main character, Monroe's my character, right? She's the one that people are reading this story mainly for. When she says a thing is a thing, then the thing is the thing. That's it, you know? Like, she's incredibly intelligent. And now she's going to be told that, no, she's wrong. And I, I need to have this conversation between them because it's going to be laying out information for the reader on why the scenario is as bad as it is, like what they're both discovering through this exchange of knowledge. And since, I mean, this is still first, well, I'm not going to say it's first draft anymore. This has been through so many iterations, but it's, it's, not, it's unfinished. And normally I would just never in a million years share unfinished work. But because I have been posting it as I write it, at least the earlier iterations of this on Patreon, Patreon for my patrons, I don't have a problem reading unfinished work here. Just be aware that, you know, there may be spoilers. I don't know. I don't know if there's spoilers or not, but I'm going to read it now because I feel like the best example to convey this thing about sidekicks and secondary characters and the, how easy it is to let one look dumb and how hard it is to maintain that mutual respect for characters on the page without getting wordy, without um, stating the obvious, <laughs> as we discussed last week, um, how difficult that can be when there are so many unknowns, when there's an exchange of information, when there's so much at stake. And, and here's where I have it now. And I mean, it might be a little bit difficult to, to totally get what it took to get it to this level without reading the earlier versions, but the earlier versions have been so through so many drafts, I don't even know if I have the original anymore. But here we have Monroe and Bradford, and they have basically slipped the leash. Um, they know they're under surveillance, and they've gone out. Um, they're in Big Bend, Big Bend country. Um, anybody who's from Texas knows what that is. If, um, if you don't, Google it. It'll be more interesting than having me try and explain it. But they're in Big Bay country, and they are out in the middle of nowhere alone, where they finally can talk. They have not seen each other uh, or spoken to each other since the critical event that basically upended their lives. And Monroe is being asked to do a job that she may be being blackmailed into it. And here's where they finally come together. They finally have a chance to talk. Bradford exhaled long and slow. Anxiety bled off him in waves. She said, tell me. He whispered, Ben Collins checked out legit. So in the earlier chapters, Ben Collins was somebody who um, basically said he was with the FBI and he was trying to get her in on this team. And she flat out does not believe that he's FBI because that is not how the FBI operates. And so, okay, he whispered, Ben Collins checked out legit. Her brain latched onto the detail. It couldn't help itself, pulling her out of momentary peace and tossing her back into analysis mode. She shook her head as much to herself as to him. Everything about Ben Collins had been lie upon lie. There was no way he worked for who he claimed to work for. He's just got a really tight legend, she said. Figured that too at first, Bradford said. Cashed in a few hard-earned favors to get third and fourth opinions. There are too many random corroborations going back far too many years for it to have been all backstopped, for it to have all been backstopped. He's the real deal. Calculation, frustration. 
Monroe reached for her boots and tugged them back on. If this had been normal client background due diligence, she'd have been able to look over the raw intel, would have had access to its sources, and been able to build her own confidence analysis rather than be forced to accept at face value what most certainly didn't fit. She knew what she knew. Ben Collins was a liar. She said, a real identity maybe, but as borrowed cover. Radford nudged her. She stopped lacing and glanced at him. He said, keep calling me stupid and eventually I'm going to get offended. She smiled and leaned back and nuzzled her forehead into his shoulder. You know it's not you, I doubt. So that's just a snippet out of that conversation and their exchange together. And that was me threading the needle between how to keep that mutual respect between characters so that they both feel real on the page. And it's not just Bradford telling her information she needs to know and then her taking that information and making a decision about it while he's just sort of on the outs, just along for the ride, which is what the original was. Even if you go to Patreon and you read chapter three as it was posted, the, the most recent iteration of it, which is a couple of years old now, I think, at this point, um, it really was just him giving her information, her dismissing it. And that same line of him, you know, keep calling me stupid was eventually in there as my as sort of a compromise to that. But it really did just feel as if he's just handing her date, handing her details. And so my challenge was to keep him as an equal as an equal character, not just a foil, not just somebody that she uses to get what she needs and then moves on, regardless of how he feels about the circumstances. And because he's opposed to her doing this, he knows that they're going to kill her. Why would he want that? So that, that there is just part of, that's just a small snippet out of the conversation. But without knowing the, the the conflict of, like, it's not a conflict between characters, it's a conflict for the author, for me. How do you do this? How do you keep both characters real and alive on the page so that that exchange between them feels authentic instead of, here's your hero, here's the nobody sidekick? And I just thought that that might be a, a usable example of, the outcome of that thought process. You know, when we, we discussed this episode, the idea of having this episode, I was searching through my memory banks for some of my favorite character slash sidekick. Sidekicks. And the first one that comes to mind, and I'm sure this will be no surprise to anyone who's a regular listen, listener to the show, is Spencer and Hawk in the Spencer books where even if you've never read one of the books, you may have seen the old Spencer show on television. And Spencer and Hawk are essentially equals in, in terms of capability, and they need each other. But from a, a book or a movie perspective, Spencer's the main character, Hawk is the sidekick. And that's a, a, an endearing partnership. But then I think of another endearing partnership, um... And that's one that, that's sort of the opposite. And it's uh, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. I knew you were going to say that. I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I've, 
I've not read the book, so... Uh... And, and depending on, you know, which version of Dr. Watson you're familiar with, the old black and white movies, the books, or the, uh, the BBC uh, episodes, they're all different versions of Dr. Watson, but they're all essentially the same. Dr. Watson is a lesser character who's there to let us know how brilliant Sherlock Holmes is. But isn't he... The prime isn't he the main point of view? Isn't he the protagonist? He's the one telling the story. He's the storyteller. Yeah, he's that's the narrator. completely different. Okay, so well, but he's still the sidekick. Yeah. He is, but it's his story. It's his story about another character. Essentially, it's his this him following along basically somebody he, that he admires, and so being able to tell who that other being able, for him to be able to describe Sherlock Holmes, um, he can build Sherlock Holmes up. Because it's from him. If you, if that story had been told through Sherlock Holmes's perspective, and that's why it works, is because it's from Doctor Watson's perspective. If it had been told through Sherlock Holmes's perspective, and he was the narrator, uh, the or the point of view character, and Watson's asking him the questions, and Sherlock Holmes just rattling them off or whatever, then. Dr. Watson would be a foil. He would just be somebody asking those basic questions. We wouldn't ever know his thoughts, his emotions, his feelings, nothing except for what he actually expressed in words. But by having him as the main character, we get all of that insight. And so he feels real and alive. And that allows us to exalt another character even higher than him because it's through his perspective. Interesting. That's very interesting. And I would not have thought of that. And when you look at the, when you watch the series, there really is no narrator. If you watch the BBC thing, it's just a television show. And the right. old black and white movies are television shows. And you're right, in the books themselves, the, the stories were penned by Dr. Watson. In, in theory. You see, that's, that's the difference between being able to, to use the visual medium or to use only on the the page right because on the page we are locked into what to the character's thoughts where it's a very it's a much closer thing we can't really look out and see multiple characters interact unless they're one of those whose eyes we're seeing this thing through right so on television even if there's not a specific narrator what you're what you can do is you can still sh you still see that person as a living breathing thing they still have facial reactions they still have their own personalities all types of things that you can't get onto the page unless it's through observation or that person's point of view it's a completely different storytelling medium okay all right so uh, i'll go back to spencer and hawk then i'll use them as one example and we'll take Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson out of this example. Well, and they I'll, were a very good example. Well, they because, were. They were. Yes. But I, I need something at the opposite end of the spectrum, so I'm okay. going to go a, a different direction then. And this is one that you won't be familiar with, so I'll have to explain it a little bit. And this is um, from the old Travis McGee series. It was Travis McGee and Mayer. And they were friends, and Mayer was the sidekick, and it worked perfectly. It was the opposite of Spencer and Hawk, where they were both essentially equals. And in this case, Travis McGee was the man of adventure, the physical person, um, the guy that was going to get things done. And Mayer was uh, Dr. Mayer. He was uh, an economist, an economist. Easy for me to say. He was an economist. And he would travel around and give papers. And, and he was just like the intellectual part of the partnership. 
And every so often he would get involved, but they were so dissimilar that they also were a great pair of protagonist and sidekick, but the opposite of Spencer and Hawk. Okay. And kind of the same, because each had tremendous respect for the skills of the other, but they were opposite skill sets. But those that respect showed up on the page. Oh, yes. It wasn't yes. like just one character saying, you know, do this, do that. And the other person saying, oh, no, well, you know, that won't work. Well, yes, it will, because blah, 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 you know, and just as very, it's, it's, it's balanced, right? I'm yes. assuming. It's yes, sort no, of it, a balance. It, it was very much balanced, and they each had, you know, uh, uh, McGee would go to Meyer to help him figure things out. And yeah, Meyer that's... would come to McGee if somebody was going to beat him up, say. It's an absurd example. But if he was in physical jeopardy, he would come to McGee to, you know, it's like, hey, this guy's, this is a problem for me. I need your help. Yeah. No, that, those type, that, that's all great. That's what we're going for. Where I've seen sidekicks turn into wooden side pieces, basically, is where they seem to have no personality. They just, they're just there as, as a way for the, the main character to show off how smart they are or whatever, you know, I, I personally get offended on behalf of those side characters. Mm-hmm. Like, why are you still with this crazy main character when they treat you like that? You know, you're not a child. Why are they treating you like a child? Yeah, but great. And, and that was what I, Great side characters could really make a series and, and make a, a series into a longer running series because there are so many things that you can do with two characters instead of one. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that in this particular series with Monroe and Bradford, there have been some books where Bradford is not as present as he is in others. And you hear from readers like, I really missed him. I missed his presence because mm-hmm. even though he's not the main character, he's someone that they have grown to like and appreciate. And my challenge in this, this it's not really the opening sequence, but it is one of them that is setting the stage for the books, is creating that to regenerating or explaining, ex- displaying or whatever you want to call it, getting it onto the page, that mutual respect that these two characters have for each other. And the, the issue isn't that all characters need to have that level of respect. It's that here's someone who is in her life as an emotional, romantic, working partner. Would she, someone of this caliber, be in a relationship with a lesser man? who is so much less her equal. So if she's if, if she would, fine, if that was her personality and she's just using him, fine, that's who the character is. But that's not what Bradford is in this story, right? In these in this series, he's not that. And so the the danger is focusing so much on the main character that you forget that that secondary character who the story is not about still has, the story is still about them. As far as that character is concerned, it's all about them. <laughs> and so um, if you, in the same vein of what we've talked about before, where if you diminish the villain, it makes your hero look weak. If you diminish the side characters, it makes your hero look weak or less than. So if it's as the scene originally played out, 
Bradford didn't have as much of um, a role in it and his emotional investment in it wasn't as clear, that has the effect of diminishing the stakes because it diminishes Monroe's emotional investment. So your hero always, you know, that's your, your center, but all the characters around them are almost like a mirror that are shining back. And if the, if the secondary characters, the sidekicks are diminished in the same way that if you diminish a villain, you are going to diminish your hero. So that was my challenge in this scene is how do you not diminish the hero? How do you raise the stature of these other characters so that it is self-evident without going into unnecessary detail that they are respected, equal team members that she values, even if she's already made this decision and she's going to do what she wants to do regardless of what they have to say. I don't know that that little piece that I read right there fully encapsulates that, but that's what I was working on when those thoughts were going through my head. So are you satisfied with what you have there now, or is, are you going to continue I'm to work on I'm still working it? on that chapter. I, I, it, has, it has really kicked me in the butt one word at a time. <laughs> um, it's been through so many iterations, and it has, it, it has to do with, like, the, the sketching of it is there. Like, I know the, the choreography, but it has to do with the exact words being used, the exact emotional responses and the timing of those responses and the order in which information is relayed and how and to provide an appropriate emotional response from both characters with each new piece of information that's being handed to the readers. It has been incredibly challenging and I don't know if it would have always been this challenging for me, or if it's just especially so now that I'm still coming out of this brain dysfunction, and now there's a whole worldwide dysfunction going on at the same time <laughs> that is very mentally taxing, and it's just been hard. But as for that specific segment, I think I have it where it's close. Well, I'm not touching it anymore. When I come back on another draft, I might tweak things here or there, but I have it where it leads in perfectly to what comes next and it it works so i'm leaving it alone all right and with that we will leave this episode alone as being complete <laughs> yes yes we will <laughs> thank you all so much for listening we will be back in your ear again next tuesday see you guys next week <laughs>